This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. In this climate emergency, it's dangerous to get complacent and it's lethal to be defeatist. Oh, you may be wondering what I've been thinking about, but I, this is what I've thought. I've met many people who say that the coal industry will die out. Look, the prices are low, there's a glut, and the Adani mine, for example, will never get up. They think talk of climate emergency is a bit of a beat-up, that I'm being melodramatic when I talk that way. Other people, by contrast, say politicians are all in the pockets of the coal and gas companies and they have deep pockets. They say that they're ruthless and they're driven by neoliberal ideology which does not care about climate devastation as long as there's a short-term profit. But I think this is defeatist talk. Tonight, I'm bringing you the voices of people living where the coal mines are threatening. Jody Nancaro from Bylong Valley and Bev Smiles from the Hunter Valley are on first, followed by financial analyst Tim Buckley, who will give us a cool, hard look at where coal is actually trending. He's a, really a top expert. And lastly, we will talk to Jonathan Lenos from ACF. They have recently challenged the decision to let the Adani mine go ahead in court. Despite the global warming impact of the exported coal on life everywhere, the planning approvals have been going on and uh, ACF thinks this is just a massive reason to take them to court and they're taking them to a court a second time, so Jonathan will come on at the end. The idea for this program came from a letter. I received it from a landowner at Bylong. In New South Wales, he wrote to me before... Oh, sorry, it's in New South Wales. He wrote to me before a gag clause prevented him doing any media. Why was he being silenced? Well, he and his partner had decided to sell their property to a South Korean mine company after six years of uncertainty. He has been a valiant campaigner and there have been wins in this part of the country. But the loneliness of his fight is very clear in parts of his letter, which I'll just read to you now. He said, If a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear, does it make a sound? If a mine, any mine, destroys a valley and no one is there to see it and no one is able to say anything is it really that bad of course it is bad but this is a game of voices and politics and projects that attract less noise or friction are likely to have a smoother path through the approvals process 
Now, I will say again that I received that letter before the gag applied. But I want this radio broadcast to make the fall of this particular tree very loud indeed. I want you in the big cities to note the fact that in, out in Barlong Valley, this is what's happening. So I've invited Jodie Nankoro, who is the current president of the Bylong Valley Protection Association, to tell us what is happening up there. A company called Kepco from South Korea is getting ready to dig up a coal mine in a greenfield site. How is their community reacting? So hello, Jodie. Good afternoon, Vivian. Oh, I'm so glad you're there. Thanks for being on the show. Can you tell us what your association does? Uh, probably not very much at the moment, Vivian, but six years ago when KEPCO first became prominent in the Bylong Valley, um, we formed an alliance. It was, it was basically to gather information so that people could make a very informed decision on whether they wanted uh, for KEPCO to proceed or not. Um, but most of those landholders have now been bought out. I would say that of the 10,000 hectares that KEPCO bought in their exploration licence, which they paid over $400 million for when uh, coal was king, um, there is probably now only... They own 80% of that exploration licence with uh, no word of an exaggeration, and they have not even turned a sort of soil as far as a mine goes yet. So the valley is a beautiful farming valley right at this minute. Could you describe it? It's a very productive um, valley. Um, you know, it's, it's not big when you compare it, say, to the Liverpool Plains, but it's still very important. The valley has been my home for nearly 30 years. Um, it's wonderfully fertile country. It's a steep escar sandstone escarpment country. We're surrounded by a national park. Um, we have an abundance of underground water and um, we're very concerned that if someone starts uh, interfering with the water and the soil, then there'll be other parts of the valley that will uh, certainly not be the same. Yeah. Well, look, how has this um, the last six years, how has standing up for your valley affected you? It's been really difficult, Vivian. Um, I... I was a bit dubious to start with. I'd seen so many other people standing up trying to, to fight big companies. And like you introduced at the beginning of the show, um, politicians uh, seem to be hand-in-hand hand with some of these companies, and these companies have got very deep pockets. And I don't think this is any exception in this case. Um, I've found it difficult. Um, and it's wearing six years of living in limbo is not fun. Mm. Um, it's hard to make plans for your future. I've always been a person who's been responsible for my actions. Um, if I make a mistake, if I make a stuff up, then I'll own up to it and say, right, I will grab the steering wheel mm -hmm. and start again. Mm -hmm. But when you have someone come in and take over the steering wheel and you have no control over that, uh, that, that is uh, a somewhat of a huge concern. Well, I wanted to do this story because a lot of people are saying, look, the days of coal are over. Coal mines are, are still being approved, though, and people are selling up and leaving your valley. I wonder, is that mine actually going to go ahead, do you think? Well, I mean, if you talk to Kepco, they're very, uh, they're very positive and, and bullish about their prospects of a, uh, an approval being granted. The, um, 
the state government, uh, it's basically in their hands. Um, they have a series of flaming hoops that uh, the company has to go through. Um, and for the amount of money that they have spent and the amount of landholders that they have bought out, they will be able to say to Mike Baird and the planning department, um, listen, there's only half a dozen people left. You know, we're not going to upset too many people and there's no community left because the community's gone. It's been very sad to see our community absolutely decimated by this company. Mm. The school has closed. The, just the social fabric of the valley is, is no more. It's a very, very sad scenario. Um, and all this can happen and they haven't even got approval yet. So the people who've sold out are trying to sell out while they can still get some money for their place. I presume once it's known that that's a coal mine and it's it's open, then the value of their land goes down and they're, they're stuffed. Is that it? Well, it would be very difficult to sell privately to someone when there's a coal mine um, very close hmm. um, and and they still cannot prove. And there's no... There's, Regardless of, of what their experts have said, once they start interfering with the underground water of this valley, it will dewater other areas of the valley. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't got water as, as a farmer, you cannot farm. It's, it's that simple. And, and I believe that if TEPCO uh, start their open cut, mind you, they've got plans for two open cut pits approximately two kilometres away from where I live oh. tell me that they that not won't be impacted hmm. and the mine life of those open cut pits are eight years eight years I am absolutely beyond belief that someone can think that that is a viable option then they're going to go to um, underground after their eight years because it's obviously cheaper hmm. to get coal from an open cut than it is underground hmm. and then as soon as they uh, finished with the um, open cut, then they will start underground. And the underground life apparently is 22 years. Um, and then that's only stage one of the project. We uh, we are nowhere known about stage two, stage three, stage four. We're not told that we're treated like mushrooms. <laughs> um, we'll be the last ones to know. Well, we're going to hear later from a financial analyst, Tim Buckley, who's very much on your side, though he's really in the international arena and he sees the trends and he thinks it's very short-term policies at the moment and a lot of these things are going to be stranded assets. Um, uh, look, and that's very possibly for the, to be the case. KEPCO are only shoring up thermal coal resources for their coal-fired power stations in South Korea. So this is a South Korean company, 51% owned by the South Korean government, who are going to dig up Bailong. They're also going to dig up um, the graves of some five um, remains of people at the Catholic Church so they can dig up their coal. Mm. Um, And purely for their own power stations. So I can't believe that they couldn't just go and possibly buy a cheaper mine. There's, I hear of mines in Queensland and in the Hunter Valley that are going quite cheaply, that are in care and maintenance. Yes. Well, they've already been approved and they've already stuffed the country around there. That's so, right. So, you know, keep mining there and, and don't dig up in an area where there is no mine whatsoever. 
Well, that's right. So yours is a greenfield site, and when I got the promo for this show, I asked someone to look up some photos, and he had this beautiful picture of the valley. I have seen pictures before, but really, I haven't been there, and it's so mad, isn't it, where, as you say, there are already mines in care and maintenance that are, you know, by them. Oh, I don't know. Yes, so that's I, exactly I'm, right. But, you know, over Musselbrook Singleton Way... Yep. It's already a moonscape. It is just ridiculous. And to think, it's hard for me to actually try and imagine the chaos that will go ahead. And, and, I'm, and I'm not given any, I don't feel good when, when Kepco say, oh, best mine practice. We will absolutely do best mine practice. When over the last six years we have seen them make so many mistakes. Um, and they haven't even built a mine yet. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm, um, um, I, I quiver, and I'm, I would absolutely be heartbroken to see see it happen. But you know, in all reality, um, I really, I really think that Mr. Baird's government is probably going to give him the big green tick. Well, and it's very sad. Well, I'm hopeful, really, in a way that you can hang on. As you said, you've been there 30 years, and um, that you said to me when I was arranging this that the um, planning commission has started to take an interest in the social impacts, at least. Well, haven't you got a really strong story to tell them? What What would you say to them of the social impacts? Um, the planning department have taken an interest since about October of last. So for about the last 12 months, the New South Wales planning department decided. You know, you can measure coal dust, you can measure noise, blah, 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 but you cannot measure the social impact. And, and that's very true. But to see small villages, you know, absolutely decimated by the coal industry, um, and, and that's happening to Bylong. You know, the school's closed. Um, Kepco would say, oh, well, you always had trouble with the numbers. Well, we did have trouble with numbers, but the school stayed open, but they made sure that it, closed down after buying out farmers and especially farmers with families so that was it you know so once your school's gone that's kind of your social fabric mm. and it it makes it hard to we, we also have the general store in town and the general store was and was it was definitely the word the hub of the community and now um that is no longer the case there is no community, no one talks about the very big pink elephant in the room, the people that are left, and I don't know whether they're under a gag clause, I think some of them are, and it's very sad to see people just, you know, so, so we've, not only have we lost friends, we have lost local business, and it's, it's pitted family members against each other, it's pitted friends against friends, it's a, very, very sad scenario. Mm, I was thinking that might have been the case. Okay, well, look, thank you very much, Jodie, for speaking to us. You're a long way away, but a lot of people are listening to you tonight. So thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks for the opportunity, Vivian. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, now, so that was the local situation, listeners. That's the Bailong Valley, little town, getting littler by the minute, um, but still no coal mine there. And now we're going to talk to Tim Buckley, who has the world picture at his fingertips. He's a, a financial analyst, and we'll just hear from him now. Tim Buckley is the Australian Director of Energy Finance Studies at IEFA and is much in demand, so I'm very grateful to him for sharing his analysis of where coal is going. How are you, Tim? 
Good afternoon, Vivian. Very well, thanks. Okay, look, I was surprised to read in Mike Seacombe's article in the Saturday paper of October 1st, where you are quoted quite a bit, that the price of thermal coal has suddenly zoomed upwards by 40%. And, you know, coal activists were very glad to see the coal price very low for quite a while, but um, we were predicting the end of coal, but now it's zoomed up. Does this mean that we will see new coal mines opened up in Australia? That is certainly one of the risks of the coal price recovery. And uh, bearing in mind, if we step back, a higher coal price in one respect is bad. As you point out, it could encourage capital to come back into coal mining. But in another respect, coal is only of value because it's used in coal-fired power plants. So the higher the cost of the fuel, the higher the cost of coal-fired electricity Therefore, the more competitive renewable energies become. So, ironically, there's a little bit of a um, two-edged sword there. And the the higher coal price, as you mentioned, could potentially incentivise new coal export mines. So, therefore, a global perspective is critical to put that in perspective. And to me, as Mike Seckerman analysed, the key change in 2016 relates to China. China's coal consumption is on track to decline for the third year in a row in 2016. So it might sound a bit strange. Coal consumption is declining. It's declining out for the third year in a row, and that's pushing the coal price up. Now, the reason is because China has enacted a series of policies over the last three years that culminate in a reduction in both demand and supply of coal in China. And because China is the world's largest producer of coal, they're also the largest consumer of coal, their policy drives the global global coal market. And by cutting supply of coal faster than demand for coal is falling, that has had the short-term impact of spiking up demand for coal imports, and that's pushed the coal price up in the short term. Okay, so short term. So we'll hang on to that idea, listeners. Now, um, Tim, the Minerals Council of Australia said that new coal-fired power stations being built in Asia would have 30 time, 32 times Australia's current capacity. Well, in my world, that means 32 times the emissions. But... Then I read in the paper that 80% of those will be in China. So do you think that they will be built? They're in the five-year plan, but do you think they're going to be up and running soon? If we look just to China, and it is absolute misinformation from the Minerals Council of Australia. They're using old numbers that clearly do not reflect the current government thinking in China And as we already said, China is half the world's coal consumption, half the world's coal production. So what happens in China drives the world's coal market. China has upwards of 200, possibly 250,000 megawatts of stranded coal-fired power plants. Mm. You know, the 250 gigawatts of excess capacity in their coal-fired power market, the Chinese government is now absolutely aware and absolutely scared by the implications of that because that is a quarter of a trillion dollars of investment that is absolutely wasted. Mm. And you can see that in one number, and that is that the average utilisation rate of the Chinese coal-fired power sector in 2016 year-to-date is 46%. These are plants that are designed to run at 70% 
and they're running at 46%. So the Chinese government earlier this year announced an absolute moratorium to try and stop the building of new coal-fired power plants. So getting to your question, the Minerals Council is relying on the Chinese government to keep building stranded assets when the Chinese government's clearly come (laughs) out a number of times this year and said they're not going to do that. They're not stupid. They're well aware of the change. The change is happening far faster than they thought, and they are changing their policy to accelerate the transformation of their electricity market to move away from coal. Nothing could be clearer. Oh, look... Understanding the rapid changes in China are really vital for us and I know you're fascinated by what's happening in China and India and follow it very closely. If they're getting more renewable energy and cancelling those coal-fired power stations, it may be bad news for Australian coal miners but is it necessarily good news for climate? The two are related but not, um, not as closely as they need to be. I... As you're aware, I am very bullish about the rate of change in the electricity markets and the rapid technology and financial impetus behind renewable energy. But climate scientologists are totally aware that the climate change impact is happening faster than anyone anticipated. You only have to look at the Arctic and Antarctic sea ice level melts to realise everyone has been negatively surprised by the rate of change in the climate. So it really is a race. Can we change towards renewables fast enough to actually slow and ultimately stop the change in the climate? And at the moment, we're not winning that battle. There has been a major step in the right direction in the last couple of weeks with the ratification of the COP21 at Paris. And that now means we have a global accord backed by China, America, Europe, and now India and Brazil that will force a global policy response. So ultimately the question is, can that be implemented fast enough? Yeah. Look, it's very hard, I think, for people to keep climate front and centre of their minds. We've had blackouts and hurricanes. The United States and uh, Haiti and Cuba have all been suffering terribly. But they're reported in an increasingly panicky way, but they still do not connect with the climate change caused by coal, gas and oil and how to slow down. You know, the, the big discussion to me should be how, the how to slow down the climate change that we're seeing. And so meanwhile, the Bank of England's governor said um, the finance sector needs to assess climate risks. And I think that's, he's been saying that for a long time. And do you think this might dry up finance for new mines and new coal-fired plants? Absolutely. And that then comes back to your first question. It's all very well there being a pipeline of thousands of gigawatts of new coal-fired power plants on the planning board. But if there is no finance for them, they won't get built. And that is what we're seeing in China. And that's what we're now increasingly seeing in India, where the Indian Energy Minister has in the last month said he wants to stop the build of new coal-fired power plants because they're not needed. Now, that's India and China both saying they have built too much coal-fired power plants. They're moving away from coal and they've got surplus capacity. So the argument that coal is inevitably going to be used and help solve poverty is just rubbish. Mm. Ultimately, I'll look at one set of numbers that's come through in 2016, and that's what makes me ultimately bullish about financial markets. And that is you look at the solar tariffs that have been awarded across the world in the last couple of months. Dubai, an absolute record low solar tariff of 2.4 US cents per kilowatt hour. 
Now, that is down 60% on where Dubai was 18 months ago. We saw it in Chile, 2.9 cents per kilowatt hour, an absolute record low. We saw it in Mexico last month, 3.3 cents per kilowatt hour. We've seen it in India over the last 12 months, 6.4 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, in each of those cases, no one forecast that low, co- that low price of solar electricity. Mm. And that now means solar is cheaper in every one of those markets than new imported coal-fired power plants. So no banker in the world is going to evaluate a new coal-fired power plant in ignorance of those solar tariffs. So the only way you can actually go ahead with those coal-fired power plants is if they increasingly have federal government support, effectively financial subsidies from either China or Korea or Japan or Australia mm-hmm. for these projects to go ahead. You can't go ahead without subsidies in coal-fired power plants because the financial markets are totally now aware of the magnitude of technology change yeah. and the fact that solar is more cost-competitive than new coal new imported coal. Well, I mentioned South Korea. I wanted to uh, talk about India and South Korea as well. And we heard earlier on this program about South Korea's uh, company called Kepco opening up a new Greenfields mine in the Bailong Valley. And, uh, you know, I'm reporting on the grief and anguish experienced by the people. It all might be very clear to you on financial markets where the trend's going, but for them, they're seeing this beautiful valley fresh for farming, you know, really for farming in perpetuity, about to be dug up for coal when, as you're saying, you know, it shouldn't happen. And um, later on in the program, we're going to hear about two Queensland mines in the Galilee Basin, one owned by Gene Reinhardt at Alpha and the other one owned by Indian um, owner Adani at Carmichael. And, you know, they're caught challenges to them. It sounds like India and South Korea are still wanting our coal. So what's the picture there? Well, there are certain private companies and certain foreign billionaires who are willing to continue investing in coal. There is always different views on it, and the coal price rally has certainly reinvigorated some of the coal bulls. But you mentioned up in Queensland, GVK, sorry, you mentioned two projects, the Adani project and the GVK project. Gina Reinhart actually sold out of that project. She still owed 560 million US dollars, and... So her involvement is as a silent minority partner because she couldn't get out of the project when she sold it to GVK. She did a brilliant deal to sell the the proposal to GVK for $1.26 billion. Um, The only problem was she only got two-thirds of the money. So she's stuck in there as a minority shareholder. I would uh, certainly not suggest she's in any way a proponent of the Galilee low-quality coal. Um, It's GVK. Now, GVK, and I make that distinction, is dramatic. One's a billionaire, a very, very successful billionaire. The other one is GVK, that's a $150 million minnow who is drowning in debt <laughs> in India. So they've got about $4 billion US of debt and they've got a market cap of $150 million. So I wouldn't expect them to be building any multi-billion dollar projects in the Galilee any time this century. So do you think it's worth community groups going on, taking these uh, groups to court, challenging it, um eating their hearts out about it or, or should we just let it let market forces no, take well market forces will work eventually but these corporates only look at one thing and that is how can they profit personally and privately they only have that motive 
uh, whereas the community has to live with the consequences. So the more the community speaks up about the externalities of coal, of coal mining, of coal-fired power plants, of climate change, of pollution, of one-in-1,000-year extreme weather events that happen to happen three or four times a year at the moment, and you just go, well, the world's changing, we've got to move on. There's no point the government endorsing, like the Queensland government this morning has come out and endorsed the Adani project, and you go, well, they know full well that the world is moving. They've got their own solar renewables target of 50% renewables energy. They're ahead of the curve on that, yet there they are promoting someone to build a a stranded asset in the Galilee. I mean, it's Mm. speaking with forked tongue, why bother? And unfortunately, it just shows the stupidity of our short-term political thinking that the Labor government feels they can't actually say what they truly believe, that this project is not going to go ahead and is not commercially viable. Unfortunately, um, they're pulling out all stops to make it work because they're looking at the short-term jobs. And the short-term jobs are a misnomer because Mm. they won't happen. Mm. Look, my last question is about moratorium. Um, you know, I think a lot of people sort of just hope, wish for big government stepping in and making regulations like this. But Indonesia and China have both put a moratorium on no new coal mines. Would that be a good plan financially for Australia? It would be absolutely in Australia's strategic national interest to put a moratorium on all new thermal coal mines. Categorically, it is in our national interest because we are one of the two biggest exporters of coal in the world, alongside Indonesia, and it is absolutely detrimental to Australia's interest to flood the market with new coal mines as demand is falling. That can only serve to push the coal price down. Governments get royalties on the back of revenue and the more you push the coal price down, the lower the revenues will be to the state governments. The federal government would only get corporate taxes if the coal mines are profitable. Expanding new coal mines, introducing new coal mines will push the price down. It will remove all the profitability from the supply side and it's to the benefit of the buyers. Now, we are a seller, not a buyer. Why would we deliberately want to flood the market with new coal mines to push the price down? That is contrary to Australia's national interest. So a moratorium for a year, for three years or forever is totally in our economic interest. It's also 100% consistent with our commitments under the COP21 at Paris, which has now been ratified. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Tim. So that that was Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. He's the Australian director and his name is Tim Buckley. Thank you very much, Tim. Great. Thank you. Thank you. We're back now to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Listeners, you're listening to 3CR, and we're talking about too late for new coal mines. And we've just heard resoundingly from Tim Buckley there that it's not even in our national interest and it's not financially sensible to keep on opening new coal mines. But there's also the grief and the local impacts, and as he said Everything else is externalities, and that's obviously our job to keep talking about it and keep everybody knowledgeable about it. So our next guest is Bev Smiles. Now, she represents a bigger picture than just the Bylong Valley. She represents the Hunter Communities Network, and she's been into this mine watch and river watch and every sort of watch group for many, many years, and I admire her a lot because she just absolutely is so well-informed and has her finger on the pulse of this very... Big beast. So, welcome, Bev. Hello, Vivian. 
Thank you for taking our call today. Bev, I would like you to give us the New South Wales picture. We've talked to Jody Nankara up at Bylong and then Tim Buckley for the International, but what about the, lo- the New South Wales picture? I had thought the mines were being put in mothballs mainly, but where else are there new mines or, or extensions of coal mines going ahead? Well, we've got two things happening concurrently, and that is there are mines sitting in care and maintenance because they're not viable, but we've also got projects that are continuing to put in expansions to the Department of Planning in New South Wales. Uh, the Bylong um, example is a new greenfield mine in definitely the wrong place. But we've got existing mines and uh, projects that are still scrabbling to get new approvals, either to extend the period of time that they're operating and also extend the areas of land that they're likely to be impacting on. Uh, So um, we still have this process of coal projects sitting on the Department of Planning's processes and another one is the uh, Rocky Hill project right next to the township of Gloucester Um, and a a really horrific project that's just been out on public exhibition is in the Midhunter near Singleton and it is a mine that is in care and maintenance at the moment, an underground mine and the next door open cut mine owned by two different companies, Glencore owns the underground mine and uh, Peabody Energy, which is the American company that has filed for bankruptcy in America, has the next door open cut mine. Uh, they've currently worked up this combined joint venture project to open cut the entire lot and it, the impacts of that mine are just substantial. So while we've got the, what Tim Buckley's talking about, um, no real certainty for the for the industry itself in, into the future, we've got these companies desperately trying to get new approvals across the, the line uh, with the expectation that it you know, it look, makes them look better for their shareholders or that they can find someone to come in and buy them out or that they, they firmly believe that the price of coal will go back up and they will have a viable concern. Uh, so for the community, uh, in the Hunter in particular, uh, there's just, it's relentless and there is no, no, seeming stop um, of the industry's desire to continue to expand. What about at Bolga? We've reported on that quite a lot and I've lost track of what's happening there. Well, because, you know, the Bolga people have lost all opportunity for, the, you know, that they have to stop the progress of the giant Walkworth mine, uh, it's proceeding as approved. Uh, the only thing actually that is currently holding it up is that the Wallaby Scrub Road uh, still um, is in the uh, Singleton Council's ownership and Singleton Council has been very strong on supporting the community, uh, saying they do not want to sell the that road to the mining company 
and they they are objecting to that road being closed. Mm. And at the same time, there's a campaign being run to protect that road because it is part of the World Heritage listed northern road uh, from Sydney up into the Hunter that was parts of the still um, heritage areas that were built by convicts. So that's sort of the last hope for protecting um, the community of Bulga um, is that if we can save that road. So there's still hope there and there's still a lot of campaigning going on. But Vivian, this is relentless stuff and people's lives are just totally overrun by this continuous need to push back um, through whatever processes are available with a coalition government in New South Wales that's hell-bent to continue supporting the fossil fuel industry. Mm. So that's what we're up against. But as communities, we do work together and we look at whatever opportunities we can. You do. The last time I interviewed the Bulga people, they were holding a vigil on that road and I've met them and they love their history and they really are doing absolutely fabulous work of heritage as well as everything. You know, the Aboriginal people have the heritage there. I know all of that. But what about you, Bev? I I wonder what got you started, all this gathering information, monitoring, lobbying, standing up against the coal mines on the farmlands, and, and also what keeps you going? Uh, well, what happened with me, where I live and the river I live on, there was an existing coal mine that had been approved at the top of that river, so that's the Goulburn River, and there was a relatively small operation on the top of that river, but we, we were very concerned about the impacts of that uh, project, and I got involved in being on what's called the Community Consultation Committee, or the Triple C, mm. for that mine in 1998. So I've been following the industry pretty closely um, since that time, and then and then through the mining boom that happened at the beginning of this century, we now have, that mine has doubled in size. It now has approval to produce 20 million, up to 20 million tonnes of coal a year. So that's a Glencore mine at Yulin. Next door to that, we've had the approval of the very large Yankol Chinese government-owned Malabin mine. And then next door to that, we have the Peabody-owned Wilpingjong mine. They're, so the all combined is is over 50 million tonnes of coal per year just out of the area that I live in. Mm. Um, so I've experienced firsthand, you know, the immensity of the mining boom and the impact that's had on my community and my environment and um, the river that I love dearly. Yeah. And so uh, I have learnt a lot of the process. I'm now on the triple C for the other two mines as well. But what I realised, Vivian, was that there were people out in the Hunter all experiencing exactly the same traumas that myself and my family and my community uh, were experiencing and I realised we needed to join forces and learn things from each other. So that was the the concept of Hunter Communities Network and so we give each other whatever support we can uh, with what's happening in our backyards. Well, I know, I'm very glad to have asked you that because uh, I know there are some wins and part of the wins is this community 
gathering together even as other communities are decimated and thrown to the four winds. But uh, there's this solidarity. I've noticed that in meetings, you know, the people who just do support each other and they travel long distances to go and stand up at a meeting and and lobby and, and just network incredibly. But... Um, I notice you have started up on this thing of, of what's going to happen to the voids, you know, these big mine, massive mine holes as the industry leaves them and abandons them. And I noticed in New Zealand, uh, Indonesia, they've had a moratorium on new coal mines and they have a terrific problem of coal mines abandoned recently because of low prices and no rehabilitation, but also because it's rather chaotic, I think, there and, and the owners cannot even be traced. They don't know who, who is responsible for that mine and so there's all of the same problems we've got here with toxic water and that there, but there's no one responsible. And I wondered what is the situation in New South Wales with these coal mines that are being left behind? How... How hard is it going to be to get the responsible people to pay for the rehabilitation or at least take responsibility for those blots on the landscape? Yeah, so we've got a range of different things going on in the Hunter because it's been a mined area for a long time. We've got what's called the old mines that had conditions that are ancient conditions that really didn't require them to do very much at all. Um, we have what are called derelict mines, which is what you're talking about in Indonesia when the companies have just up traps and walked away and left the mess behind. So, so we've already got the legacy of derelict mines with acid mine drainage and a whole heap of very expensive environmental impacts that no one's putting any funding into fixing. And then we've got this newer, bigger tranche of mines that have been approved, say, over the last 10 years that do have now more stringent conditions and they do have to lodge a bond uh, with the government, which call, is called a financial um, assurance, so that if they do you know, go bankrupt and walk away, that the government's at least got some assurance of some funding to get in and do the work. Our concern is that those bonds are nowhere near enough um, to fix the problems. The other concern we have in the Hunter is that there's already uh, close to 30 voids that are approved to be left in the landscape and the bonds certainly do not cover the long-term management of um, the highly saline, highly contaminated water in those voids in perpetuity um, and there's no real understanding of if that land ever did get um, sold on to somebody else who would be responsible for managing the legacy of uh, those voids. So the whole issue of cumulative impact on the hunter is something that all governments have been dodging while they've been handing out more exploration licences, handing out approvals, allowing more expansions to go on. No one has got a serious understanding of the amount of damage that is already occurring in the hunter region. Right. Well, I think that's an that's a subject for a future show, entire show on that. I know, I know Drew Hutton was talking at a conference I went to some time back and about it. And I think quite a few people must need to be gathered, and expertise in in rehabilitation needs to be gathered too. But thank you very much for talking to us tonight, Bev. That's sketched in quite a, quite well the New South Wales picture. Thank you for talking to us. Thanks very much, Vivian. Okay. Bye bye. You're listening to 3CR Radio. 
Welcome back, listeners. Now, we're going to talk now to Jonathan Lenoz. We've tried, I've tried to give you a, a different facets of the problem. It's too late for new coal mines, the local anguish, the big international picture, the stranded assets that are ridiculously going to happen and how China's very scared of their own stranded assets and they won't be buying any more from us to fuel a new fight power stations that they don't want. Then we've got Bev Smiles with the, the voids and the um, problems around uh, the what's left after coal mining walks away. And the last person we're going to talk to is from um, Australian Conservation Foundation. They're all fired up about, by, about the Adani coal mine up in Queensland and they've already had one court battle to prevent it going ahead. So welcome to Jonathan Lanoz. G'day there. Hi. How did you feel after the federal court rejected your appeal and found that the Environment Minister had the right to conclude that climate pollution from Adani's coal mine would have, quote, no relevant impact on the Great Barrier Reef? How did it affect you? Look, it's amazing. You prepare yourself for these moments. You know there's a chance uh, that such a decision will be made, but it still, it still knocks you. You know, it was... I let myself get my hopes up, I suppose, um, that, that common sense might prevail. Um, but it was a, it was a bit of, bit of a blow. And, and like you say, that after the blow came the, the shock of realizing the absurdity of what, what was allowed to stand. This idea that the environment minister, the, the person charged with the job of protecting Australia's environment, places like the Great Barrier Reef, can get up and send his lawyers into court to argue that a coal mine as big as Adani's proposing, 4.6 billion tonnes of, co- of carbon dioxide it will pump out, will have no impact on the climate and no impact on the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, the absurdity of it is, if, if it wasn't something to make you cry, it would make you laugh. Mm. Well, the Queensland High Court has also rejected from another environmental group an appeal against a Galilee coal mine called Alpha and their EDO lawyer, Joanne Bragg said uh, just last week that this was a very important public interest case about the contribution of coal to global warming. And just tonight we've had Tim Buckley saying that it's in our national interest to have an absolute moratorium on new coal mine, even just for financial reasons. And we have international climate protection obligations as well from the Paris Agreement. So is it just that we are waiting for a sort of a judge who gets it? Is it the judges who are, are obtuse or what? Look, I, I think it's the fact that really our system of environmental laws um, has been hamstrung all the way along by the power of uh, the mining lobby and the carbon lobby in particular, uh, who have always managed to at the last minute sneak in these clauses, these get out of jail free clauses into even the best environmental laws we have in the country. The, the fact is it seems time and time again uh, that there is no... There is no way to say no to these things. It, it is, um, it, it's, there, there's always a loophole. Um, and we won't, we won't stand by and, uh, allow that to continue. We will take this as far through the courts as we can. And if we, if we lose there, we, we will make sure there are people standing around the country saying enough is enough. But I think it does point to a more systemic problem. 
with Australia's environmental laws, not just one or two individual judges. Yeah, well, as you said, um, you, you know, the courts might not, might, be, might, might not be able to give the decisions we want and we absolutely must get for the climate protection. But after the courts, you can go to Parliament and yet they've got an Environment Protection and Biodiversity Act that doesn't even mention global warming and approvals are given, which, as your CEO, Kelly O'Shaughnessy, said, the approvals have so many gaps you could drive a coal truck through them. And so how can we expect politicians who receive donations from coal companies to tighten these environmental protection laws and mandate a consideration, even a consideration of the climate impacts? How can you expect that? Well, well, I think, I mean, firstly, you've hit the nail on the head. These um, these laws are, are written by uh, Politicians who often receive uh, uh, donations and support from the very uh, interests who these laws supposedly regulate. So there's a problem there. There's a vicious cycle we need to break. But you know, we we have um, as communities achieved great things in this country before. Uh, chain, you know, standing up against vested interests. I don't think it's impossible to imagine a day uh, where. Uh, our, politi- our elected representatives actually listen to us on these issues. Times are changing, but we just need to all push that, <laughs> push our politicians to move quicker. That's true. Well, it's around the world. You know, Naomi Klein called it blockadia. Um, all these groups, wherever you, your local problem is, people have congregated around them, especially led by Indigenous people. They're blockading oil and gas drilling in the Amazon and in the Arctic. They've blockaded the Keystone Pipeline out of Canada. And, and I think our Galilee Basin is up there in destructiveness with those other projects. So ACF is going back to court with its, um, I believe, 340,000 members. That's an impressive membership base. And um, uh, one of your members has offered to give a dollar for dollar up to $35,000 to anyone who can donate to your campaign. So what will your argument be this time if you go back to court? Uh, well, our argument is, as it was before, uh, that quite simply that amount of carbon pollution, which is inevitable if we dig up that coal, um, will make an indelible mark on the Great Barrier Reef. And that is contrary to Australia's obligation that it's signed up to with the World Heritage Convention and then wrote into law with the, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act to protect the reef from harm. So we'll be arguing that that international treaty uh, that is brought into Australian law by the Environment Act um, is being breached and that despite the fact that that act doesn't explicitly mention carbon pollution, it doesn't allow us to turn the other way. The Environment Minister was wrong in uh, uh, turning his eye away from that problem and that we need to start saying no to these projects. Great. Well, look, thank you for talking about that. I think that gives us, in a nutshell, about the taking the coal-type projects to, you know, climate-affecting projects to the courts. But now let's turn ourselves to ARENA because uh, ACF has also had some comments about that. Um, the, the other aspect of reducing our climate, aspect, uh, our climate uh, impact is to transfer energy sources away from coal, oil and gas, and you've taken up the defence of ARENA. Uh, could you tell us about that? Yeah, well, look, um, this is a, a government that, that loves to talk about being innovative and agile and, and moving Australia into 
the innovation economy, and yet it's cutting funding for the very type of, uh, of work that, that will enable that to actually, that vision to come true. Uh, ARENA funds the sort of uh, research and development um, phase of renewable energy. It's the, the birthplace of the innovation chain, if you like, and yet the, the government has, um, has just cut uh, a whopping half a billion dollars from ARENA uh, whilst, it, whilst it's pumping out billions of dollars, $6 billion of taxpayers' funds to subsidise fossil fuel industries. So this, this is a really backward step and it's part of a, a, long, uh, a long chain of federal government attacks on renewable energy ever since uh, Tony Abbott uh, okay. first came to power. Well, um, I, I would you know, defend Arena's budget, but it has been cut. And so I wonder now... What what can be done to boost um, the renewable transition? I, I mean, especially when they talk about jobs, it rather annoys me. Um, the, they always the, the justification for those two Galilee Basin projects, Adani and Alpha, were given by the New South, the Queensland government, saying, "Oh, it, it will give us regional jobs. You know, regional jobs will be just." so much boosted by this and I don't think those are long term jobs anyway in the construction of the railway and the mine but but anyway that's the big argument for having those mines and I wondered what do you know about regional jobs being boosted by funding arena, funding clean energy finance, funding all the agencies that will get renewable energy going Yeah look we, we did some analysis ourselves um, just back in September and found that the projects currently on the shortlist for ARENA that, that, that could uh, receive funding in future if ARENA has enough money left, um, it would amount to about 5,000 direct jobs, uh, and those then have flow-on effects in, in regional communities. Most of those jobs are in actual in regional areas, and they're exactly the kind of jobs that, like you say, are, are the jobs of the future. They're, they're not the jobs of a dying, dirty, polluting industry. They're the kind of jobs that this government should be supporting. Okay, well, look, thank you much, very much, Jonathan. We're nearly out of time. I was going to ask you another question, but I'd just like to finish with a quote that was on your website from a famous biologist called E.O. Wilson, who's one of my favourites, and he said, our society will be defined not only by what we create, but what we refuse to destroy. Is that what your thinking is? I think that's a, a, a beautiful statement and, and absolutely we, we do have to learn to say no and refuse to do some of these crazy projects in this country Great, alright, well thank you very much for talking to us I hope you have success with your court case Thanks a lot thank you. So that was Jonathan Lenoz from Australian Conservation Foundation and now, listeners have we got time for a community announcement? Uh, no, we have one in a moment, but I'll just thank everybody and then we'll, we'll have a community announcement. We've been a bit short tonight on those, but thank you tonight to the team. That's Teddy, Roger and Jody in the back room and Andy in here on panel. Myself, Vivian Langford, preparing the show and interviews. Thanks also to Mike Seacombe of the uh, Saturday paper. He wrote that article on the 1st of October about what's happening with coal, and it was quite, I think, quite groundbreaking. Also thanks to ACF for all their newsletters and their report recently called Licence to Kill, which is about killing off the species and the barrier reef. Thanks to the campaigner at Bylong who alerted me before his gag clause came into effect that there is no time to be complacent about new coal mines. Our guests were Jodie Nancaro, Bev Smiles, Tim Buckley and Jonathan Lanose. 
Many thanks to them for sharing their experience and expertise with us. For campaigners, you might like to check out the website for Australian Conservation Foundation. They have lots of campaigns and for the Bylong Valley Protection Association. Believe me, a little support goes a long way. Even just looking them up, seeing what they do and, you know, seeing what you can do for them, sending them a message would be appreciated. As with last week, I would like to say Salut Babette to our secret listener up at Mudgee. She gives me valuable feedback on the show and the encouragement to make it interesting. Now, I don't get emails from any of the rest of you listeners, so I'm always open to people sending me some feedback. Encouragement, really. As you know, we are in a climate emergency, and although the corporate media will tell you about all the horrifying events, they will not focus on how we can prevent them getting worse. They will not tell you there is no carbon budget left and that we cannot go on exploiting coal, oil and gas. They will lull you into thinking that the Paris Climate Accord is enough when we, in fact, need to radically withdraw down some of our emissions and to stop out the out-of-control damage. So let's not be complacent and let's not be defeatist. The guests tonight that I've brought to you are all brave and well-informed people and I hope they are an inspiration. So good night to you. Stay tuned for Save Albert Park and then uh, tune in again next Monday for the Beyond Zero Emissions show at 5pm and this Friday at 8.30am.